Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'm exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our times. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout the series we've been delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. We were with David Rook and Jennifer Garvey Berger last time examining how to lead in ambiguity and the leadership journey. Today we're journeying into the realms of purpose with Ella's Kitchen founder and social entrepreneur Paul Lindley. He started Ella's Kitchen, named after his daughter, in 2006 and built it into a $100 million brand before selling the business in 2012. Since then, he has focused on campaigning, including chairing Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK and also the Mayor of London's Obesity Task Force. In this conversation, we get into discussing trust, how capitalism needs to change, and creating a kind of world. And Paul gives a great summing up of the technological and social forces that are shaping the leadership agenda. What I'd like perhaps to start off with, um, Paul, is if you could just kind of give us an idea of of your background, uh, how you got to where you are now, um, and some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. That would be really helpful. Okay, thank you. Um, well, my name is Paul Lin Lee, and um, I guess I define myself as the founder of Ella's Kitchen, um, which uh, became the UK's biggest baby food brand. Uh, I was there for 10 years, started it, grew it, and, and sold it, uh, and then thought about how can I use entrepreneurial skills and thinking in other aspects of society. So the things that I've gone on to do in the last three or four years um, have really been around social enterprise, around public policy, around children's welfare and sort of activism and campaigning, but trying to push them to take some of the things that entrepreneurs do within businesses to, to start up, scale up, grow, take evaluated risks, etc. Um, and, uh, and so I am involved in the Mayor of London, I chair his Child Obesity Task Force. I'm on the board of Sesame Street, you'd know it as, Sesame Workshop. Uh, I started a human rights organization called Robert Kennedy Human Rights in the UK. Um, I chair a social enterprise called Toast Ale, um, and I wrote a book, uh, which was a bestseller, on uh, the huge power of thinking like a toddler, which sort of reframes the way uh, we think as adults, uh, trying to find the best person we ever were, or find that person again uh, at that time when we were free-thinking and imaginative and self-confident, uh, and trying to reverse the the nature, some of the bad things about growing up that uh, reduces our uh, view of how life can be lived. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've learnt a few lessons on the way, I'm sure. Um, what, what I'm interested in, obviously, for this this podcast is we're looking at 21st century leadership uh, and how the landscape in which we're operating has changed. So from your perspective of, of building business and, and being involved in um, social enterprise, what do you see as being the biggest changes in the way that leaders need to operate uh, as opposed to the old 20th century model? Yes. Um, it's interesting. Why, I always ask my question, the question, why? Um, so things have definitely changed and are changing at a faster pace than ever before in the concept of what a person thinks about who they are and what they want their life to be led. Um, I think in the 20th century, people were, were, didn't, didn't object or sort of accepted that they um, could be defined in a narrow sort of a way. I'm a business person, invariably a businessman rather than a businesswoman. I'm a doctor. I'm a mother. Uh, I'm white, I'm British. Those sort of things sort of defined what people are. And I think in this century, this generation, the next generation, the generation after, will, that will just be part of their makeup and they will need to juggle and are juggling um, different identities and, and different things, which, which changes society and changes what our institutions are within society and changes how they will be led. So there's a framing of who we think we are, I think is an important part of how leadership is changing. Um, another fundamental difference, there's lots of, lots of changes that are going on, and perhaps I can uh, go through some of, some of those as part of this answer. 
but um, but the meritocracy, it, 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 the idea that we can that that, that that talent can get to the top wherever it comes from, um, is is uh, is is true of this century much more than it was of the last century. The consequence of that is um, younger people will be in positions of leadership earlier. Uh, and will be accepted as, as those positions, and a more diverse background of people will um, will show different leadership styles from different lived experiences, and um, uh, 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 and we can follow, we can choose to follow diff more more diverse, different leaderships, if you like. So there's more choice for us followers if we're looking for a leader um, than, than there ever was before. But the sort of the, the spread, the disbursement of leadership, I think, is is a factor. Uh, and when you get younger people in positions of leadership, for me, that's so exciting because innovation, new ideas, uh, risk, uh, ability to adapt happens with younger people rather than older people. So, so there's some fundamental things within that. But I fundamentally think we are living not only in a time of change relative to other eras, although change obviously always happens, um, but it's the speed of change, I think, that is that is new and somewhat uncontrollable um, at the moment. And, and it's easy to think of, of change, you know, being technology-led because that's the thing that many of us are grappling with, certainly the legislators are grappling with to keep up with regulation and legislation around that, but all of us as, uh, as to how we use it. Um, um, but uh, 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 really tech and social media and AI are really changing the way we think about ourselves and the leadership that opportunities that, 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 that leaders uh, have. But, but fundamentally, some of the things that I think come out of that is that, is that um, sort of transparency is, is the new green of the late 20th century, if you like. Leadership requires transparency now because you will be found out if you're a leader that's, um, that, 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 that's not being transparent uh, very, very quickly. Um, and, um, uh, and and trust will fall in you because of that. Um, but but also, sort of using technology to lead through um, you know some of those things like algorithms and AI, which which can predict trends. So the leaders that that can rely that can take people with them on trends and take the risks that is backed by data that wasn't there before, it was more gut feel before, are the leaders that are going to be more successful and therefore their leadership style and their leadership will be more more, more praised, if you like. Um, but really it's being underlined by the, the fact that they're using technology. So for example, um, you know, if you can spot trends, spot trends in, um, uh, in, in tech, the tech area, for example. So I do know that at that the same time, that the, the evidence shows that the, the time it takes for 10% of the population to adopt a technology is exactly the same time, again, that it takes for 80% of the population to adopt that sort of technology. So five years for somebody to 10% to adopt it, another five years for 80% to adopt it. So if you can spot early when 10% of the population has adopted a technology, it is likely to get to 80% and you want to pile in at that point. You don't need to be the original innovator um, and you can use you can use trend analysis and big data to, to sort of get, get in that. Also using um, technology to spot demographic changes and demographic um, lumps, if you like. So, you know, data can show you that, that, um, that, that different types of demographics have similar patterns of behavior and similar, similar purchasing experiences, for example. So, you know, if you're 65, you're more likely to go on a cruise with uh, other 65-year-olds than a 20-year-old. And if you're 15, you're more likely to download uh, uh, the latest music than if you're 65-year-old, that sort of thing. So if you can spot where the lumps are of the, the demographics, uh, not necessarily just age, but, but elsewhere, then um, you can see where the market potentials are. So, so the change of, of being able to use big data and technology in a way is, is fundamentally changing the ability to prop up leaders um, and, 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 and for us to believe their leadership is something special because it's under, under, underpinned by, by, by technology. Um, other changes that are, are, are driving styles of leadership are we are more aware of scarce resources than we were ever before. And building businesses or you know, allocating 
uh, uh, public sector, public monies and things. So, you know, we are aware that uh, metals and uh, primary products, commodity products will be, uh, are, are running out. And do we want to create businesses in a society that uses, you know, makes lots of profit for 10 years because they dig a mine dry um, and then sort of have nothing thereafter and the societal impacts from, from thereafter? Or do we mine it so that it's sustainable? So this is obviously true of big issues like, you know, the Amazon forests and how farming, big farming uh, uh, affects the environment, uh, as well as clean water, as well as the air quality and things like that. So we are aware and leaders are finding ways to sustain resources whilst lead, whether that's for, in businesses for profit or with a society to take us with them. Um, uh, another fundamental change is really around fundamental human, um, a, a unique human. I think there's two unique human attributes that that that, that help help has helped us be the uh, dominant species on this world. And one of them is around trust. Um, you know, a, a an active, intuitive thing that defies logic in a way it's just intuitive we trust each other or we don't trust each other but there's been a fundamental change in the last two generations um, between um, how we see our fellow human beings and whether we trust them intu intuitively or not uh, i've seen washington post um, research uh, that shows in the 1970s about 50 percent of people trusted people and, and 50 percent thought that you can't be careful enough with people now that is 70%, 30%. 70% wary of trusting a stranger or just another human being. Um, and, and that's changed in a generation. Now, evolution hasn't forced, you know, that's faster than evolution. So something has happened now. You know, the end of that last 30, 40, 50 years has been a technology revolution. We can talk about that in a minute. But, but there's something else. Yet at the same time, as trust is falling between individuals, between corporations, between individuals and institutions, um, we have things popping up where we'll go online and we'll read about somebody else's holiday on TripAdvisor and we'll trust that they're telling us something, we'll book a holiday based on the fact that somebody else has said that we've never met, we'll never will meet, has said something about their holiday. Or on Kickstarter, or on Mumsnet, or all of these platforms where we go on and somehow we trust a total stranger. And I've sort of thought, well, is this new thing in society which isn't the individual comments that people make, it's the crowd. This idea of a crowd is brand new. And that is changing how leaders can lead, how we can live in societies, how businesses can operate, and it's brand new. And, you know, we, we haven't quite worked out whether it's a wholly good thing or, or not, so because that falls into all sorts of things where you can be manipulated as, you know, Donald Trump and, and, and big politics are sort of, um, have shown. Um, so there's another area. And then perhaps the, the last thing in, in, in sort of fundamental changes I see is really around the attitudes of young people today. I guess if we're post-millennial now, but sort of young people in their 20s coming into the workforce who, unlike other generations, will be leading many of the places where they work um, in 15 years' time, by their mid-30s perhaps. That wouldn't be unusual. Whereas back in the 1960s or 70s, it would be in their 50s or 60s or 70s. So fundamental things in society are changing like that. For example, parliamentarians, ever since any sort of form of democracy last two or three hundred years started, have been older than the population that they are representing. Um, and now that's not true because people are living longer. Funny enough that the age of a parliamentarian in Western democracies has stayed more or less the same, around about 45 for 200 years. Now the average age in many Western countries is late 40s. So suddenly people are older, than the, the parliamentarians are younger than the, the, the people they're serving. That is going to affect how public policy is directed. Um, you know, not, not the immediacy of now and some of the big problems we're facing now, but over you know the generations that are to come to, to, to question what is a state and what is a city and what where, where our loyalties lie and where risks we take and things like that. So um, the fact that younger people are in positions of leadership um, is different because I believe 
and I'm not sure I've got the evidence to back this except the lived experience of starting a business, running a very successful business and, uh, and working in public space a little bit, it is that they're more led by values than previous generations. And the leaders, especially the people that have choices of where they work, who they work for, whether they want to set up their own business, um, tend to find um, places that deliver more than a salary or an output for a shareholder. They want to find places that deliver on their values um, and, uh, and will have the, have the power to force those values to change, to adapt to what they want. So I've covered a wide variety of things there, but all of which I think lead to a different type of leadership that will be successful in this next, you know, the rest of this century. Um, and, uh, and undoubtedly in the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a whole load of more changes at a faster pace that I haven't even thought about. You, none of us think about at the moment. Wow. So some really, really interesting, wide-ranging stuff there. But what, what I find fascinating is that uh, at the end there, you've kind of gone full circle because you started talking about uh, the idea that people are going to be much more values-led. And then at the, right back at the start, you were saying you always start with why. Yeah. Which kind of links into your, your values. Why are you doing it? What's important about it? Which is linked to your values. So uh, obviously, values are central. Um, and that changing values, you mentioned resource scarcity, awareness of that creates di different um, different set of values around that and so forth. So really interesting. What I'd like to do is, is take a little bit of a deep dive into some of the things you that you raised there. Uh, there's probably a lot more than we can cover in the time we've got available. Um, but what I'd start with is you were talking about transparency and the importance of trust which I think some of the issues that you raised there are linked to um, the fundamentals of how society works and one of the things that enabled society to flourish was the an early development of the concept of reciprocity so you do something with someone with no expectation no expectation of an immediate return but that eventually you will get back what you give out. Um, and so that I think has oiled the wheels of society for millennia. But then in the late 20th century, we started, or perhaps we didn't start, perhaps we continued a progression where as a society, we'd gone from being tribal, to living in smaller groups, extended families, nuclear families, uh, and now we're down to the individual level. So people aren't actually hardwired to cope with life on an individual level. They're hardwired to do it as part of a community. And so what I'm seeing is that this cult of individualism uh, and people having to fend for themselves has actually undermined the concept of reciprocity that more and more people are seen as being out for themselves to get ahead and the expectation the trust that you will receive something has has been significantly undermined by that um, so I think that's all really really important as a concept to understand that uh, the whole thing about trust, which I think is going to be the number one issue facing organisations over the coming years. Because what I'm seeing is that organisations are having to respond to the changes in the operating environment. And you mentioned that the speed of change by empowering the people who are closest to what's going on to get on and make decisions. And you've got to trust them. And when we're actually not brought up to do that, as leaders, the previous leadership model was based around command and control because you couldn't trust them. And so now we're trying to turn that on, on its head and say, okay, well, the most important thing is we've got to trust our people because they're the ones that can make the decision. So in your experience, how do you see people coping with that kind of transition? Yes. Um, yeah, really, that's a really good analysis of where we are. I've just finished reading a book this summer, um, 
the latest book by Professor Harari, uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which I'm sure yeah. you know, what were you talking about. That arrived in my letterbox yesterday. <laughs> it is a great read and it sort of addresses some of the things that we're talking about here. And one of the key things I took away from it, comparing the 20th century with this century, is that point you touched on around, you know, is a human being a social animal, Part, it only functions really well when it's part of a society, it's connected, it feels its place, and it relies on others and the reciprocity that that, that, that delivers is a core part of us being, the well-being, the well-being of us as, a, as individuals and as a species. Or are we individuals? And it's all about competition, and it's all about um, uh, uh, your, your skills and your ability to uh, use those skills in the best way for you and perhaps your family, if that's how you define, define you. But... but but the big tussle of the 20th century, which the book talks about a lot, was uh, through the century, there were three competing philosophies or three ways societies can offer that competed with each other. You had communism, you had fascism, you had liberal democracy. And at different stages through the century, different ones were winning. And by the end of the century, the last 10 years of the century, only one, there was only one winner left. The other two had disappeared completely. So we're in a liberal democracy world where most of the world now has some form of democracy, whereas in the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much six countries, or certainly in, 19, in the 1940s, only six countries had democracy left. Um, but, you know, he calls it, well, what comes next? Because there's certain things that are undermining liberal democracy now, um, that uh, around populism and around fake news and stuff like that, that, that calls into a fundamental thing about trust for human beings, but it also questions, this brings back this, are we individuals or are we society? We've always had left-wing and right-wing politics, which, you know, that's kind of it, 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 almost in the middle because the extremes of fascism and communism and, and, and we don't know what else might come to challenge liberal democracy, but there are areas where liberal democracy is definitely breaking down. I chair a human rights organization, I'm passionate about human rights, but, you know, human rights are... are, are in that in that spectrum that um, uh, that, that is, is is fluid and changing, so um, they, they may not be an issue in, in 50, 100, 200 years um, as they clearly are now. Um, so w within all of that, how do uh, another thing you talked about, which is is, is so how how do things change? And I think so often change. It's not, it's not the opportunity to change that, that is the seminal moment. It is the point where people accept that change is something that they're comfortable with. Um, we're, we're in a, a, you know, it's easy to think about driverless cars now. You know, the technology will get to a point where a driverless car, you know, the, the, the algorithms and the statistics will make it fundamentally safe. Um, but we're not going to trust it safe, coming back to the word trust again until we've experienced it and, you know, we, there's, some, there's some time now where, where it's trusted. Yeah, we're happy to go into an aeroplane and an autopilot will drive us from A to B, fly us from A to B, and we trust that somehow. Um, and it will just take time for us to ad adapt to driverless cars. And it may be quicker if we don't call them a car, we call them something else. And we reframe ourselves to think, well, it's, this is a brand new thing and I can buy into well, a car or something that I drive and I'm not happy if I'm really scared if I'm not driving it. Um, and, and so that, that, that sort of concept plays through with different business practices and different ways of doing things. Um, you know, I fundamentally think, and I do a lot of work around um, capitalism fundamentally needs to evolve quickly. In fact, it might even be a revolution, not an evolution that's needed. If it is going to be the dominant form of our economy, in, in future years. We talked about kind of a democracy and, and things just now, but capitalism clearly came through the 20th century as well. But it's not fit for the rest of the 21st century, in my view. The idea of shareholder primacy is not fit. The idea that the next generation is going to accept the fact that an individual shareholder and capital has so much more power than, than, um, than anybody else or any other form of uh, asset um, uh, will not wash because it will deliver inequality. And when you've got values uh, driving lives and increasingly societies and businesses in the long term, I believe, um, then then it needs to evolve quickly. And um, uh, 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 and 
and this is where I think history is, is, is a great um, teacher for us. And I think if we go back beyond the 20th century, to the 19th century, when capitalism first started, really, um, and you got the first stock exchanges, which were really built to uh, provide funds for sort of the East India companies and the, 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 um, the, 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 the fruit plantations and things. Um, but the, the measures of success of those companies way back in Victorian times was not GDP and EBITDA and things like that. It was the success was based on human measures around um, increasing education or reducing crime or prostitution or uh, drunkenness or uh, reducing disease prevalence and things like that. They were the things that were judged in those, way, those first big companies. That's how they judged their success. And it seems like we're kind of almost going full circle. And circles, you know, the, I, we tend to think we've invented new things now, but perhaps we're just going back to, into circles um, for, for, for most of them. Um, so really, I, I, I come to, I think the way businesses are structured and operate will need to change. The evidence is there, and I, you know, I, 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 um, uh, I can talk about that if you like, but um, perhaps more interesting is, like, how do you get into the psychology of, a, of, of a, an employee or a customer or a shareholder to catch up with the needs um, of, of companies to be fit for purpose for what society demands of them in the next century. And I'll just finish with this little bit by looking again just over a generation or so. When I was at university, I did economics and um, monetarism was the big new thing. The 1980s, um, you know, uh, Thatcherism and Reaganomics and stuff was starting to adopt it. And the whole thesis of Friedman and, and uh, his, his cohort was um, you know, companies are not human beings, they are institutions that are designed to create profit full stop for the shareholders. And the way that will work in society is that those shareholders will take risks, they'll be rewarded for that, they'll be rewarded massively, and that money will flow down, that wealth will flow down, and trickle-down economics will happen. And 50 years later, we're waiting for it to flow down because inequality has increased. And although we've created great wealth, Society now is uncomfortable with the, the fact that it hasn't trickled down yet and uh, the, 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 um, the wealth gap has, has got greater. So people are looking for new ways which, uh, of, of structuring companies and, um, uh, 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 and, and being more comfortable with the way society is. That's affected our politics, but it's also affected our businesses with things like B corporations, uh, public benefit companies, uh, and uh, the SDGs and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a trend that will continue. So I kind of have gone around the houses, but it sort of says that um, businesses need to change. Our, the way we structure our economy needs to change, and it will happen. We don't quite know how fast or how, 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 what things will change, but it will happen because the young people that will be the leaders of these companies in the next 10, 15 years, have a different set of values, different set of life experiences, and um, I hope that we can bring business and the economy back to be subservient, if you like, to society. It is there to serve society rather than to be separate of it. Um, and all of the things I've talked about just now sort of point to the fact that in the, 20, the end of the 20th century, I think we lost the connection of human beings and the things that we've created to support human beings, like countries, companies, um, and uh, and other institutions. Yeah, and I think um, this whole thing links back also to something else you mentioned earlier, which was around resource scarcity. Um, and the current capitalist model can't really cope with that um, because of the fact that the way that they have evolved, they are now very much based on maximizing shareholder value and that involves them creating externalities which are untenable from an environmental point of view. So that has to change. Um, and that, that kind of points to measurement. You know, I, evaluation is critical to any aspect of your life. You need to know that you got, we, we as human beings need the, the assurance that we're doing the right thing and we're going along the right way. And, and evaluation and metrics are part of life all the time. But... Um, with 
with resources, with the way our system is, we don't put the metric of time into anything really. There's no legal, time is not legally in, in the Companies Act or in Articles of Association or in strategies so that we can create wealth when we're not creating any new assets or any new productivity or added value because we can get activist shareholders or we can get decisions that company chief executives and boards make that are not in the long-term interest. They're not creating any new wealth, but they're creating a shares price spike to the, the, that um, people that talking shares can, can, can benefit from, but, but might run down resources. So um, that, that whole point about measuring what's, what's uh, we don't measure enough. And some of the things that we do measure, we put too much importance on that measurement because that measurement can be um, uh, manipulated. You know, you and I can have two separate companies. We can sell exactly the same things uh, and our inputs cost exactly the same, but we can declare different profits because of the way we do appreciate depreciation or, you know, liabilities uh, in a different way. And we tell the world we perform differently. We haven't. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fundamental. So what, you, what we're looking at on a macro scale is also replicated in business on a micro scale where we manage based on the information that we receive uh, and that information is very often just the things that are easiest to measure so we can measure output we can measure costs but measuring innovation me measuring the happiness of the workforce okay it's being done but it's it's not the same kind of a simple measurement that you can just come down to a single number quickly and easily. It requires a lot more effort to gather that information. So we tend to manage our businesses and our economies based on a narrow set of metrics, which are not necessarily the ones that actually drive the results. So, you know, the results of a business, as, as you all know, are probably much better linked to things like net promoter scores than they are to operational efficiency. Yep. So. Um, one, so one a great example of that would be the Ellis Kitchen. We had um, so um, fifty percent of anyone's bonus, the bonus scheme was not on financial returns at all, but it was living values. And a big proportion of that fifty percent that was related to values was for anybody that managed a single person or more. Uh, the output of a net promoter score that we did every six months within the company, an internal employee net promoter score about recommending a friend to work for the company. And if managers, if, if that wasn't extremely high, and we're talking about the like, top 2% of companies, if that wasn't extremely high and growing, then managers would not get the full bonus that they, they, they could get. And we had an extremely high employee net promoter score. And the ability to do that requires listening and um, living your values. So, so, so listening to the feedback, adapting, but living your value, fundamentally living your values. But it also means not just being this cuddly company that you know, is a great place to work. It's a great place to work because you can make hard, cold decisions. If there's people in there that don't fit the company or are not performing, it's, no, it's not okay to have average or like people that just accept the values. They've got to live them and they've got to promote them. And, you know, you've got to... You, make hard decisions um, about the best interests of delivering the mission and the, the potential of the company and the fulfillment of the lives of the people that work there um, through, 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 through some hard decisions. But, you know, a, a business that grew from nothing to well over 100 million um, in, uh, in, in, in seven years was fundamentally based on it's a people company. The, the, the biggest asset we have is our team and is our employee and we should listen to them most if they understand what the mission of the company is our customers will be happy i don't agree that the customer is the, the, the biggest thing in a business chain i think if you've got a mission and you've got a vision and you've got employees and teams that will that are passionate about that and deliver it they will find the thing that delivers the mission and fulfills a customer need and so listening to making happy fulfilling your employees um, is something that I think will change over this next generation to be much more powerful, measured, important thing through things like that, employee net motor store in the way a business evaluates its own success because it will make better products, it will make happier customers if it's got happier employees. Yeah, and I think 
that really um, highlights what, what you were saying earlier about the 20th century uh, idea of, of how we defined ourselves um, in, in very narrow terms. It was very simple to the point of being simplistic. So at an identity level, uh, we, we tended to hone down on one or two specific features of our identity rather than viewing the whole person. And, and I think that's um, also the case in business. So the way that we look at our businesses has historically, um, over the last 50 years or so, been simple to the point of being simplistic. So we look at the, the numbers that are easy and we don't get involved in the complexity. And I think when we're talking about um, how businesses can operate in a, a world where you can't afford to have externalities, you can't afford to do things that destroy your operating environment, uh, and you can't afford to have an unsustainable model. The, the current model of capitalism is completely unsustainable because any, any system which is based on extracting wealth from those who don't, don't have it and funneling it into the people who already have it, ultimately, um, there's not going to be anything more for people to give. Um, so that in itself is unsustainable. So the whole capitalist model has to change. I, I used to define myself when I was um, at school, like, like you, I, was, uh, I had a background in economics. And I, and I, I describe myself as a socio-capitalist. I, I believe in capitalism from the point of view of people investing in a business in exchange for a fair return, which I think you alluded to the, the old business model of it wasn't just about shareholder returns above everything else. So a fair return for the risk taken, whereas now it's very much about maximizing returns. You've got, you, you hear things like sweating the assets and um, that kind of thing where it's very much about short-term gain uh, and, and getting as much out of the system as possible with it and putting as little back as you can. Yeah. And that, as, as you say, is, is not a model that can continue into this century because of the fact that resources are getting scarcer, uh, we're facing potential water shortages and um, the population is exploding to the point where actually feeding everyone is going to be a real challenge. I, I, I know developments in agriculture are at such a pace that potentially we can meet that, but we can't go on as, as we are and we have to recognise that we're no longer operating in a simple environment things are much more complex we have to embrace complexity we have to embrace looking at things more systemically rather than trying to break them down in a re reductionist way and look at what we've been talking about the sort of na yeah. narrower metrics so I, I think that's all exactly true and i get a lot of optimism so the challenges to some of the things we're talking about is uh, are that um you'll you you can't measure some things like happiness, um, like um, you know, environmental impact. And that's not true, but people kind of want to believe in the things that they trust, and, uh, like, like, like financial returns, even though they shouldn't trust themselves as much as they do. But, but, so that's one argument against that. You can't measure some of these things that you want to measure yourself against. That's not true. Also, the, um, as I talked about earlier with, with sort of technology adoption, you know, if you get to 10%, then the next eight, you get to 80% at the same time. Well, maybe that's in business. So one of the, the critiques is, you know, you'll never get all businesses to believe that there's not, it's not shareholder primacy and people will spot, spot gaps and they will make their quick buck because they'll, 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 um, they'll exploit uh, an opportunity just for themselves. And if we look back to that technology thing, maybe it's when 10%, the time it takes for 10% of businesses to believe in a socio-capitalistic model or you know, it's, it, values are important as, or triple bottom lines and, and value-led businesses, um, then maybe the next eight, 70% get to 80% follows in that same time. And when, you know, we're not at 10% yet of, of, of businesses believing that they have a responsibility beyond their shareholders and, and actually take action around that. But it is growing, and you do have B corporations, and you do have um, uh, there's a group for responsible businesses, and there's inclusive business partnerships, and there's all sorts of um, organisations now run by big senior leaders. I think you know the, the, the 
Faber at, uh, at Danone and Pullman at Unilever, big companies. Um, even Larry Fink at BlackRock has talked about, about this sort of thing. And, and so it will tip at some point, and I'm optimistic that once it tips over 10%, it will tip over 80% within a generation. And so, you know, couple that with the scarce resources and the mindset of people that will lead these companies and technology and big data. Well, I, I'm optimistic that we will adapt economies to serve society better through those things that we're just talking about. That, that's great. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that. Um, I, I actually put a, a shorter time frame on it than that. I believe that the majority of legacy organisations will have disappeared within 15 years. Yes, I wouldn't disagree with that, to be honest. Um, you, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers here, but I bet I, I do know that you know, the majority of companies that were in the FTSE 100 in the 1980s are not in the FTSE 100 now, 30 years later, 40 years later. Um, I don't know the numbers from the 20, 2005 or something, but I bet a significant proportion are not there now. And there's no reason to believe Apple or Microsoft will be there in 20 years' time, 50 years' time, unless they adapt. And that's, that's a crucial thing within business. It's easy to think. You know, you look, again, look at biology, look at other systems and, and evolution. It's not the biggest that survive. It's not the fastest that survive. It's those that are most uh, adaptable that survive, that, that can adapt to changed environments that, that, that survive best. And so, so companies that think that they're doing really well now and they don't need to change and do anything will not do really well in the future. Companies that recruit from the same sort of pool of people that they recruited for 10 years ago for the next 10 years are not going to do as well as they did. Um, the, because you've got to have the mindset that can adapt to the new changes that are coming. So those nimble companies, those brave, those ones that astutely take risks, um, and those, those that listen to their employees and to trends and to big data and to human feelings are ones that are going to be um, to, to, to able to survive best. And those companies will tend to be more entrepreneurial and led by younger people with a, a, a different mindset, and they'll succeed. Uh, and I think the key to that is the fact that um, change and, and adoption of um, new ways of doing things tends to be exponential. So in getting to that 10%, um, actually it's a slow burn, and then as it gets towards that 10%, it's getting faster and faster. Uh, but it's still the numbers are still lower than that. Um, it's not sufficient to really sound any warning signs to the current established way of doing things. And it's like there's the assumption that things will continue as they are uh, until suddenly this breaks through and it's too too late for them to adapt because the rate of change, the rate of adoption of new ways of doing things, uh, is such that it's unstoppable. And for, for example, one of the things that, that is very current is around diversity. And you mentioned it earlier in terms of um, people who recruit others that are like them are going to struggle because they don't have that diversity of thinking. So my take on that is that if you want to have um, more companies or more female leaders in FTSE 100 companies, for example, the solution is not quotas. The solution is not getting the companies to change. The solution is young women building businesses that become FTSE 100 companies and actually make the change that way. Uh, and again, you know, I, th I think that will happen. Um, it might take a little bit longer than 15 years, but I, I can see that happening. Um, so and I, and the things that society needs to change to make that happen, as it... You know, and these are, these are not different to things that any problem that we're facing. I think there's kind of three areas. So take young women that want, that, that want, that will eventually lead companies. What can help them most along that way? Well, resources to do that. So the skills that they need to do that and being trained and educated and, and given confidence. Um, the financial resources to be able to do it. So, you know, the way banks lend, the way um, angels and VCs that lend uh, or invest um, and other assets, so resources. Number two is the environment. So whether that's the physical environment, the digital environment or the mental environment, where barriers are not there for people who are not like us to be able to get through. 
Um, and uh, you know that's that's big public that can be big public policy things have to do with education, to do with opportunity, but the environments have to change, and then care and support uh, needs to be given because everyone struggles, and and um, you know the best entrepreneurs are the ones that have failed or have some experience of failing along the way, and they will have needed support at some stage, and and we all do as human beings, we all we all we all fail more than we succeed, and and you know that that. I find it very interesting in America, it's almost like failure is a badge of honor in an entrepreneur's journey um, and, and, and sort of is kudos to investors. Whereas in the UK, different culture, it's like they failed <laughs> and that's a bad thing. Um, so, um, so those two things. I've just uh, spent the last year uh, chairing Child Obesity Task Force in London, the Mayor of London, and you know we've got an action plan, 20 actions. They all re relate to reducing this specific issue of child obesity around more resources, a changed environment, and, and, and more care and support. Um, and when um, uh, and you look at the psychology of the human being as well, the, the, we, we've all got a set of behaviors which are, some of which are taught, some of which are in a, our, our DNA and genes, um, but the, the ability to change behavior depends fundamentally on three things, opportunity, capability, and motivation and good leaders try to understand each of those with their, their team what's driving why is so-and-so behaving in such a way why if they apply it's this question of why again we were talking about think about it all the time why is this person applying to join our company why is this person in our company and it will be what's what's driving their motivations and it will be different to you me and every other one of us in this in this world, what our motivations are, but the leaders that can understand them can understand how those individual motivations overlap with trends and demographic changes and society norms and things. They will that they will succeed best by getting the most out of the motivation and the behaviour of their employees. Yeah, and I think as you mentioned in Ada's Kitchen, you rewarded people for the net promoter score, so they do the behaviours that will encourage building a high net promoter score. So that I think is one of the fundamental things that leaders need to be aware of is how they are um, rewarding people for their behaviors and what behaviors are they rewarding them for and making sure that they are the right behaviors and that they do link into the values. So I, th I think that simple concept of making sure that you reward people for what the outcomes that you want rather than the outcomes that are easiest to measure as we've spoken about earlier that's or, exactly right or our legacy um, yeah. value. That's exactly right in business. It's, it, you know, it's even more so in society more generally. So, you know, again, we're in this mindset of the capitalist system where supply and demand judge everything and the market will find the returns. But from the conversation we've just been having around Empathy and kindness, totally undervalued word, really important to a five-year-old, not really important to a 45-year-old. Uh, if we want those behaviors to change and that comes through, we've got to reward, we've got to understand what the motivation and the incentives are for people to be more kind um, or to breastfeed for longer or to uh, um, communicate their, their thoughts more, to bring up their children in a different way. So we're in this capitalist system where supply and demand demands everything. If we went on a different path 250 years ago, of which we could take now, in 50 years' time, we could be paying people to bring up their children well, define well, I know, but, um, uh, and maybe it's not just paying, but incentivizing in a different way than it is done now. Um, because the benefit to society of having a well-rounded child becoming uh, an adult that contributes to society in a kinder and better way might be better for our society than developing people that can be de develop the economy and create wealth in the economy. Both are important, but both are not being rewarded as important at the moment. So in a world where less people are going to work in the future if AI takes jobs and um, if productivity continues to increase, the concepts around universal basic incomes, paying people to uh, have children, bring up their children, uh, breastfeed, uh, all sorts of different different things that are kind of a bit way out there at the moment might become the norm 
Um, you know, you just look back how long ago it was when smoking was banned in pubs and the totally different culture it was where you'd wake up in the morning, go into a pub, smelling, you're close smelling the smoke and not really thinking anything of it. So that is so alien. And it's just over a decade ago. It's only 10 or 12 years ago that that happened. And it seems so far away. So we can move really quickly in what's, what's adopted. When that happened, I don't know, Facebook had only just existed, the iPhone didn't exist, all of those things that are just part of our day-to-day -day lives now. Um, so we, 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 we shouldn't be surprised about how fast this is going to play out um, in these unusual economic sort of uh, uh, metrics and society metrics. But to bring back to your point around how we reward uh, how we define success within our business uh, and how we incentivize behavior to achieve that success will be, uh, needs to be much more widely set than just what profit did we make this year. Mm -hmm. uh, because maybe we should have made less profit this year and learned something and adapted so that we can make five times as much profit next year. We can have added some innovation and we can have made people um, happier at work are more productive um, but again going back to time is not a metric in our corporate um, world so we you know that's a, that's a great example of you know it, everyone is in, most companies are incentivized to grow by five percent uh, well you know you add up those five percent and within a generation you've doubled the amount of income being created but you've halved the amount of resources that you've got in the world assuming productivity doesn't grow so we can't go on halving the amount of <laughs> growing in the economy by two percent a year doesn't work but it may be better not to grow it um, uh, 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 for a year or two but invest that in in, in long-term uh, sustainability and long-term innovation um, and uh, uh, but incentives are not really there for shareholders for employees or for management to do that now yeah um and i think you you've also mentioned uh, something which is very close to my heart during that um that answer was kindness um and i think that that's a very important leadership quality and when i'm working with clients it starts with the leader themselves being kind to themselves, and that's something that very often we don't do. We're very harsh on ourselves, we, particularly people who are driven and get themselves into leadership positions are very often quite unkind on themselves. So I, I, I think that that's an important quality. And um, what, 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 what as well—that's another change that's going on—is around you know mental health and oh, absolutely, and everything. So kind to yourself as well as kind to others is really, really, really important. Yeah. A couple of, statistics, a couple of bits of research that, that um, I, I, I discovered when I wrote my book, which kind of play to looking after ourselves and being kind to ourselves, is that um, uh, Microsoft did some research in uh, around 2010 that measured um, uh, human um, ability to concentrate on something. And we could concentrate on uh, a specific subject for uh, eight seconds in 2010. Now, it's coincidence, it's not coincidence, it's, it's, it's goldfish can concentrate for nine seconds apparently, so that's kind of scary. But more scary thing is a generation before they did similar research and we could concentrate for 12 seconds on something exclusively. So, that, what does that show? Evolution hasn't reduced by a third the ability to concentrate on something. Our demands on ourselves to um, multitask and to juggle so many things um, has produced that as well as some of the technologies and things that we and and you know our ability to our our acceptance of what we think is important in life has driven that but at the same time as that's happened you know mental health pressure stress all of those things have been affected and, and you know that they didn't do are we happier because we're doing that. Other people did research to show a similar time period, people walk 10% faster than they did a generation ago. Are they 10% more efficient? No. Happier? No. Less stressed? No. Um, so it plays back. But um, uh, being kind to yourself, and I, I focus on kindness because it comes from the best mission I've seen from any company ever. It is a company I'm proud to be a, uh, on the board of directors of, 
uh, Sesame Workshop, the creators of Sesame Street in America, uh, and their whole mission is to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Mm. And I think if we all thought that, um, we would have, within a generation, a much, much better society. Yeah, absolutely. So j just to finish off then, Paul, um, we've mentioned kindness. Uh, you mentioned the ability to understand and motivate individuals. What do you think are the other key characteristics that leaders need to be successful in the 21st century? Um, I would say that the, 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 the more human aspects of our makeup um, and bringing humanity back into business. So the ability to listen. You know, if you listen, you learn. If you speak, you don't learn. <laughs> you, you, you talk about what you already know. So listening to your employees, to trends, to anybody, to, 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 to just learn all the time. Uh, uh, I think servant leadership, um, where you don't, you know, you put the power down to the people closest to the issue. Um, to make the decision um, will um, be a trend and the better businesses will be ones where the decisions, the true decisions are made at the point closest to the customer, the problem, the challenge, whatever it is. Um, I think that will be the same as, with politics and society as well, where you're going to get devolution of powers. Um, uh, and um, I, I think... Uh, I think the diver the, the ability it's kind of tied into listening, but it's to have a voice around the table from all the different sort of interests or expertise or experiences. Um, and and you know, not stuff your board with people like you, people that are not like you because they'll have a totally different life experience and you you, you and your business will learn a lot. Uh, and make much better decisions if decisions are kind of born from collective opinions, experiences, um, and that kind of will play back to I, I, you know, and I, so that will play to recruitment and, and, and motivation, like uh, promotions and, and rewards within companies. Um, but the, the, it's the human, it's the human angle, and I think we're we're of the century where emotional intelligence is. Uh, at least on par, if not more uh, relevant than other types of intelligence. And in that, we've got to include artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's something that uh, I'm really interested in is um, the idea of blended intelligence, bl blending human intelligence and artificial intelligence to enable us to harness the potential um, for the future. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. If I just go back to the optimism. So I, I talked about one of the unique things that human beings are, and this is about trust. The other thing is about ideas and innovation. So no other animal has the capacity to imagine something that doesn't exist, number one. And then number two, make it exist through ingenuity, through collaboration, through communication, and through working as a team and as a society. We can make things, we can imagine things that don't, have, that don't exist and make them exist. And that is fundamentally driven by business who innovate and, 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 and um, that is the key. In a world where, we touched on capitalism before, in this country, we have not had productivity gains for 10 years. We've not had population gains and we're talking in the middle of a week when we don't know what's going to happen in a month's time with Brexit and what, whether how, how we're cutting off one of the opportunities to have our population grow. But those two things, population growth and productivity, have driven capitalism for 200 years. They have a, they've driven the ability to grow the economy more or less year in, year, year out, decade in, decade out. Um, and if we've not got more consumers, if we've not got more people to be in the workforce, and we've not working ways out to make things easier, cheaper or easier, then it, capitalism's got a huge problem. But the third way capitalism works is in innovation and creating new stuff and new problems. And that is the thing that we have to invest our time in, whether that's businesses or societies, we have to find new solutions. 
um, business is the best way to do it. So incentives within a business, from government to business, to take risks, to follow through, to adapt, to take long-term uh, innovation uh, and make that incentivizing is, um, is critical. And the leaders that get that and are supported by the institutions and the infrastructure of shareholders and, uh, and finance to do that uh, are the ones that will win, but have to win if we want an economy that can create wealth and serve society. Yeah, and I think the latter is more important um, because wealth, what is wealth? You know, it depends on how you measure it, doesn't it? I, I think that wealth, I like a definition of wealth uh, that I heard, which is wealth is what you've got left when you take away all the money. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, you know, wealth is the richness of your relationships and the happiness that you experience in your life. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we're kind of wandering a bit off topic, but very interesting, Paul. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Well, some incredible insights there. I recommend you spend some time reflecting on Paul's words and write down some key actions you can take to get more purpose into your leadership practice. And do check out Paul's book, Little Wins, The Power of Thinking Like a Toddler. I think it's so important for us to stay curious, to experiment and to not be afraid of falling over once in a while. For our next instalment, and the treats keep coming, we'll be getting down to culture and consciousness with Richard Barrett. In the 21st century, we all need to be far more conscious about how we live our lives, how we lead and how we treat our people. Richard started his forward-thinking work on values-driven organisations back in the 20th century, so he'll have plenty of wisdom to share with us then. like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.